This is the Ben Shapiro Show. It's an honor and a pleasure to have on George Will. He writes a twice-weekly syndicated column on politics, domestic, and foreign affairs for the Washington Post. He's been writing since 74, received the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1977. He has a brand new book out that is a compendium of many of the columns he's written over the years. Uh, George, thanks so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. So let's talk about the state of all things, since that's really what your book is about over the course of the last several decades. I know that the Constitution seems to have gone largely by the wayside in all of our political conversations these days. But what what strikes me always when, when people on both sides talk about the Constitution is the specific focus on the Bill of Rights and the complete lack of focus to the actual structural underlying Constitution. And it's that structural underlying Constitution that seems to be most in danger to me. And it also seems to be the thing that people care the least about these days. Well, you're quite right. Uh, first of all, to, to my strict constructionist friends, Constitution Day is unconstitutional because they can't find any enumerated power justifying this. But beyond that, uh, as you know, the, the, the framers in Philadelphia did not include a Bill of Rights largely because they argued that the structure of the Constitution itself, including the idea of enumerated powers, was such that it would be unnecessary to have a, a Bill of Rights. And furthermore, once they said, once you begin to enumerate the rights we have, where do you stop? Do we have a right to wear a hat? Yes, but do we have to put that in the Bill of Rights? And they thought it might disparage other rights, hence the Ninth Amendment. Uh, but you're quite right. What we're, the big problem today isn't the enforcement of the Bill of Rights, although there are problems with that. It is the utter disequilibrium that's been injected into the Constitution by the administrative state. Congress giving away its powers. People carelessly say, oh, the president is usurping powers. Well, if only presidents had to usurp them, the legislature is all too glad to hand them over on a silver salver, to thereby ducking responsibility for the actual governance of the United States. Uh, and the executive branch itself then is encouraged by a too lackadaisical court too lackadaisical to enforce the non-delegation doctrine, saying that you cannot delegate essentially legislative powers to non-legislative bodies, and also by being far too deferential under the Chevron doctrine and all the rest to administrative uh, interpretations of the law, which are often vague. I mean, the the legislature basically passes aspirations. It says, yep. we can have good education. You guys over in the education department fill in the details. And of course, the details are everything in, in legislation. What you're pointing out here, this is, this is what scares me the most about sort of the future of the country, because we can focus in on the culture conflicts, which we'll talk about in a second, and which seem to, to suck up all the oxygen in the room. But the reality is that the sort of founding vision, which was essentially localism, and then you'd have a federal government that was capable of mobilizing on a very small number of issues. And there had to be pretty wide approval across a broad variety of institutions in order for that mobilization to occur. You had to have states that appointed senators. You had to have the federal branches agree with one another. You had several constituencies from the House to the Senate, to the judiciary, to the presidency. You had to have enormous levels of agreement. In or Gridlock was the purpose. And this is what people seem to have forgotten, is that the structural constitution was designed to prevent the government from doing things, not particularly to enable the government to do all that many things. The, the destruction of that is leading to a sort of winner-takes-all attitude toward government in the United States, which is basically we now fight over the gun. There is a gun. It exists at the federal level. The president of the United States is almost an elected dictator who takes office once every four years, does whatever he wants, signs a bunch of orders, uh, and all the Congress does is decide how large or small the check is that the president gets to sign over. And it seems like we are moving from, you know, we move from an actual 
Republican system to an almost pre-Cromwell British parliamentarian system where the parliament was there to basically raise taxes for the king and then occasionally not raise taxes for the king. And when they don't raise taxes for the king, then the king just declares personal rule and starts doing things on his own. That's a very apt and interesting analogy to the, the Cromwellian government. We, now we have a Lord Protector in, in the presidency. Uh, there's another consequence of what you describe. When you concentrate more and more power away from the states and localities into the into Washington and more Washington power in the executive branch uh, and essentially independent agencies unsupervised by anyone, this is why since the last bastion of restraint on the other two branches of government is the Supreme Court. This is why the confirmation of, judi of Supreme Court justices has become a blood sport, because the stakes are enormous. Uh, Boyden Gray, uh, who's been very active in, in combating all this, makes a very good point. We see more protests with placards and all the rest out in front of the Supreme Court building than we do outside the Capitol building across the street because people rightly intuit that what goes on across the street in Congress is of secondary or tertiary importance, that it, the action is in the great marble monument to the court built by uh, William Howard Taft. And, you know, it, George, it, by the way, the name of the book, obviously, is American Happiness and Discontents, the Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. I think this is leading to an exacerbation of the culture wars because when a people feel as though their concerns are taken into account in the system, when they feel that their localities are capable of representing them and not being infringed upon by the federal government or their states are more representative of them or the federal government is capable of balancing a variety of viewpoints and then maybe doing nothing. Uh, when, when people feel that their voices are being heard, there's less of a necessity to attack your neighbor. I have to say, I, I've been disquieted, particularly over the past couple of months. I mean, look, things have been ugly in this country for a while, but over the past couple of months, the, the, the president of the United States, when, when Joe Biden gets on national television and he starts essentially saying that people should hate their unvaccinated neighbors because that's really what is stopping us from returning to normal. It's like this abdicates all policy duty. I mean, you, you either are in favor of people having a certain level of liberty or you're not. But whatever you're in, whatever you're in favor of or not in favor of, what you can't do is direct one segment of the population against the other segment of the population in order to avoid the political blame for whatever is going on in terms of policy. My uh, book contains a whole section on judicial cases and judicial power. And that section is really a monument to my great change of mind over the last 50 years. When I came to Washington, I was a Borkian. In fact, Bob Bork was a very close friend. And Bork was an Oliver Wendell Holmes type who celebrated majoritarianism. He said America is about majority rule. Uh, who, who, who said judicial deference. This was at a time when conservatives believed that the court should defer to majoritarian institutions from city councils to Congress. I no longer believe that. I believe that judicial deference is often dereliction of duty to police the excesses of majoritarianism. I do not believe there is a counter-majoritarian dilemma in judicial review. I think the point of having a written constitution is to override majorities. A constitution is to do that. The First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law abridging, in a way sometimes I wish they'd stopped right there, but Congress shall make no law abridging that even if the country wants it, even if majorities want it, can't have it, sorry. As, Je as Justice Jackson said in, in West Virginia v. Barnett, reversing the, the flag salute case of 
1939, he said in 1943, the very purpose of a Bill of Rights is to place certain issues beyond the reach of majorities, above the vicissitudes of majoritarian politics. I agree with you that uh, that judicial activism is not the same thing as as judicial misinterpretation. I think these two things have been conflated in pretty radically stupid ways. And it is not judicial activism to say that something that clearly violates the Constitution is unconstitutional. And as you say, it it should not be a matter of whether a majority passed it. If it hadn't passed it, presumably it wouldn't be in front of the Supreme Court in the first place as a general rule. The the real question is whether the judiciary is correct in striking a thing down or or not striking it down. But you're right that, that the Supreme Court as the sole kind of break on the authoritarian state I think this is leading to the, the the real possibility that the country starts to fall into more and more chaos. I, I said this a couple of days ago on my show. My, my great fear is that what's happening right now is that California and Texas are polarizing, obviously. California and Florida are polarizing. We moved our family from California to Florida for many reasons, including that polarization. And the sort of self-sorting mechanism that's happening uh, has happened before in American life, but it's happening pretty radically right now. And as the federal government moves forward, there's going to be a choice to be made, and that is, does the federal government continue to centralize power in the in the administrative state, which is likely to break the system? It's, it's likely to ossify the the halls of power to make them unresponsive to these various states and the diversity of the American people and likely to break the thing. And more importantly than that, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering at a certain point if the administrative state becomes so ossified that even the president can't control the administrative state, at which point, essentially, it doesn't matter who you elect president, the administrative state is going to do what it wants. Well, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren, is a monument to that. It's 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 financed not by an appropriation from Congress, but by the profits from the Federal Reserve System. Uh, The head of it can be removed only for uh, God knows what. Uh, It's not clear, but he's certainly not at the pleasure of the president, which undermines the unitary executive. And all of this, you know, is taking place. Uh, and against the backdrop of something that I think you and I both agree, which is that the truism uh, that politics is downstream from culture and the culture is moving in, in so many different ways. When I put my book together, I was startled by how often I've been writing about parenting and about how the way we parent leads to the production of risk averse, frightened, brittle young people who arise on, arrive on campuses and say, we don't want freedom of speech, we want freedom from speech. And we want bias response teams to fan out across the campus and police safe spaces against microaggressions and all the other nonsense that's come up. This, of course, what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus. It leaks. The graduates go into corporations and suddenly Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola and all the rest are woke. How'd that happen? I take it all the way back to the bubble wrap children that are being produced by today's parenting. The book is American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. You know, George, when you talk about the, the sort of bubble wrap parenting, you can see this actually throughout American society. The sense of safetyism that has crept into American society is pretty astonishing. Now, when, when it came to COVID, I was you know worried about COVID because my parents are 65. They were essentially with us during the entire pandemic. And so I was not against the original lockdowns before we knew the data. I was not even against the idea that you should mask when you are in the presence of vulnerable people if you are uh, if you are unvaccinated and they're unvaccinated. But we've that was all pre-vaccine. When I say that we've reached to the point of safetyism, what I mean is that we uh, every day, essentially, I see a piece in the media about how unsafe the vaccinated are. I mean, we have the president of the United States get on national television and say 
that the vaccinated need to be protected from the unvaccinated. That safety is at its finest. Once I took the vaccines and my parents took the vaccines, I actually followed the data. They are about as safe as safe can be. They are safer than they are from the flu, at which point you need to go out and you need to live regular life. But it seems as though there's a certain level of comfort in feeling unsafe and in the idea that the president of the United States and the federal government can save you from every travail of life, whether it is the, the possibility of eviction or whether it is the possibility that you might get a, a breakthrough case of COVID that results in having to stay home for a couple of days. Some people just love the regimentation inherent in public health protocols, and they will want them to be forever. You know, you, you've noticed this for ever since the, the latter half of Franklin Roosevelt's initial uh, inaugural address in which he said we have to be as though we were armed, we were being invaded by an army to fight the depression. We've made war on the depression, war on poverty, war on drugs, war on cancer, war on pornography, war, war, war. Why? Because it suggests the American people should be marshaled in serried ranks, obedient to commands from above. We've even heard in the current pandemic and vaccine fight, say, well, of course the president can exercise the general police power that we thought inhered in the states to order vaccines. Why? Because George Washington ordered the inoculation of his soldiers. Well, yes, if Americans are related to the central government the way a soldier is to his commanding officer, but we're not. And we don't want to live in a martial state, a garrison state, and be treated like this. So, George, let's talk for a second about where conservatism stands, because really this should be a pretty target-rich environment for conservatives. I mean, we've been talking about problems that I think most Americans are deeply unhappy with, ranging from the sort of... Uh, movement away from an aggressive American foreign policy under Joe Biden to an extraordinarily intrusive state to culture wars that, frankly, the left has moved too far too fast on, and the polls tend to show that. It should be sort of a good situation that conservatives are in, and yet conservatives seem not to be in a particularly good situation. They may be you know, okay electorally in 2022, uh, maybe in 2024, depending on who gets nominated. But there is this sort of gap between the policy possibilities for conservatives pushing back against the left, and then the sort of failure to break out of an attitude that is more concerned at this point with how do we offend the left rather than how do we defeat the left? <laughs> Good point. Uh, the pursuit of happiness has been distorted because happiness is now defended as understood as producing the unhappiness of the other team uh, instead of a kind of affirmation of the, the joy of being an American. The joy of being an American consists in the fact that we define happiness on our own and we pursue it with voluntary association with others in, in the spontaneous order of a market society. Because when the market stops allocating wealth and opportunity, politics will. And when to the extent that politics allocates wealth and opportunity, the stakes of politics go up and the bitterness goes up because the cost of losing goes up. And, it, and this becomes a, an awful intensifying spiral uh, that's producing today's America, which is why I, I believe that as more, as more and more so-called conservatives become what I call hyphenated capitalists, common good capitalism, therefore, or some other adjective to modify capitalism, all they're doing is drifting into cronyism and the rent-seeking that is already pandemic in this country that will produce a bitterness, as I've said, but also slower economic growth and therefore distributional conflicts that will further intensify our politics. I totally agree with this. I mean, I think that one of the things that I was talking with some friends about recently um, was the idea that 
for a lot of common good conservatives, the idea is not that there should be you know some sort of common good governance at the local level, right? Subsidiarity seems to matter very little to, to most people these days. This is why federalism mattered so much to the founders. It is one thing for you and your friends at a very local level to decide between yourselves that you want to run things you know, like a nuclear family. Uh, it is a, it's another thing to extend that out to people you don't even want to share bread with. And as the government grows and as the government is left unchecked, you basically now have a fight between the left that wants to use government to help their friends and the right that wants to use government to help their friends. And the reality is that half the country is not friends with the other half of the country. I think that we are looking at at something that that is going to a, approach an almost Brexit situation, but I don't know how that plays out in an American constitutional system. I don't think it does. I mean, we're stuck with one another. And, and the sooner people realize that, the better. Deep breath, everybody. You know, in the 19th century, we fought bitterly to the point of dismembering the country, but they were big issues. Could one group of human beings own another group of human beings? Could they take their human property into the territories? Big stuff, how to fund the government by tariffs or income tax or the sale of public lands. These were issues people were hot about, but you could say, here's how you address them legislatively, up or down, fugitive slave law, yes or no. How do you write a law that addresses anxieties that are essential class resentments? I don't know how you do it, which is why when politics has a difficult time getting a purchase on the the real grievances people have, which are emotional and status related, then politics becomes a performative art. And you get get the United States Senate today. (laughs) Totally agree with that, George. I think that one of the things that that obviously is so troubling is that People are looking for love in all the wrong places where the drunk, the proverbial drunk searching for the car keys under the lamppost. We're, we're trying to use eco- economics to solve problems of soul. We're trying to use the government to solve problems of soul and politics to try to solve all those problems. Those problems of soul aren't going to go away on their own. And it seems like they are being greatly exacerbated by things like social media. Uh, they're being greatly exacerbated by lack of community fabric. And that, that does have to do with the decline of institutions like churches. I'm not sure how we recover that. Yeah, well, first of all, Abandon social media would be a great start. People <laughs> won't. I, I, I don't tweet. I don't know how to tweet. The tweets are done in my name twice a week. They're just excerpts from my columns. I'm told I have a Facebook page. I've never seen it. I don't get the point. Uh, I happen to believe that books remain the primary carriers of ideas. And I believe that Moynihan was right when he said in the 1970s, something momentous has happened. Conservatism, conservatism, the Republicans have become the party of ideas. And in its post-war great, uh, growth, conservatism was a very bookish outfit, beginning with Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences. I've lived 80 years, and I am more and more convinced that only ideas have large and lasting consequences, and that books are still the primary carriers of these ideas. So the, the, the certainly tweets, they're wonderful for vituperation. They're wonderful for venting. But carrying ideas, I don't think so. Well, George Will, obviously, uh, an institution all on his own in American life. His brand new book is American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. Go pick up a copy because it is always filled with gems and excellent thinking and great ideas and stuff that is well worth mulling over for years to come. George, really appreciate the time, as always. It's great fun to talk with you, and I hope we do it again soon. Hey, everybody, I'm welcoming you. (laughs) I don't know if I wanted to say I'm Dennis Prager or welcome to the show. So I'm welcoming you 
to the Dennis Prager Show. It's quite a uh, last five days for me in Dallas and Chattanooga, and then San Marcos, California. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty distant from LA as such. I spoke to, let's see, wow, now that I think of it, I spoke to 1,500 people at the Dallas Baptist University. I spoke to uh, over 1,000 people at a church in Chattanooga, and I spoke to over 1,000 people at the uh, Awakened Church uh, in San Marcos last night. So I'm very curious, other than Christians, who is gathering in such numbers indoors uh, with, uh, with, without, uh, without wearing masks, and etc.? Do you know the answer to that? Do, do you, uh, are there secular groups beating in that number for speeches? Th- this, is the, this is an interesting question that uh, speaks very well for Christians. Now, it's a very interesting question. Why are, are they, and by the way, most Christians are not, certainly mainstream churches, uh, Catholic and, and Protestant, are, are not doing this. The, these have been confined to evangelical churches. Not all evangelical churches are doing this. Jack Hibbs does it, Rob McCoy does it. I mean, there are a number of, uh, uh, of individuals around the country who are doing this. So here's the question, why? Now, let me tell you a reason to, for you to exclude. It is not because they think God will protect them from COVID. All right? Just let's get that straight. Nor is it why I appear at these functions. I don't think God will protect me from COVID. He might. He might not. That's true for everybody in the world, and so it, it therefore is not is not an issue. So I I don't I don't believe that the issue. In fact, I'm certain the issue is not God will protect us, so we can gather. It is, rather, we, we weigh the dangers versus the advantages. And they have weighed, as I have, that the advantages of meeting are greater than the disadvantages of potentially dying. Do you know what the death rate of COVID when all is said and done is? It is under 1%. That, and that includes 93-year-olds who have asthma and, and, and uh, diabetes. Uh, the, the chances of somebody who is relatively healthy, relatively, not, not, a, not super healthy, relatively healthy, and under, let's say, 70, under probably 75, maybe 80, are, so, are infinitesimally small, the chances of their dying. And if they take therapeutics, of which there is a new one that Israel has used on hundreds of thousands, I believe it is, and found to be unbelievably effective, and it costs 
Did you hear about it in the American press? No, I read about it in the Jerusalem Post. I will bring it to your attention. Add it to hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Add it to ivermectin. How many of you know that the state of Uttar Pradesh, India is composed of states like the United States is, the state of Uttar Pradesh with, I I think, 230 million people, let's look that up, uh, has used ivermectin. Other states did not. They had virtually no deaths from COVID as a result of using ivermectin. Lying media like the New York Times describe it as a horse dewormer. This is the new thing, a horse dewormer. That is how it was invented, and the the, uh, the inventor got a Nobel Prize uh, in medicine. It was invented for human beings. It has been used for a long time utterly safely. But you are told repeatedly by the completely dishonest mainstream media who lie so easily they don't even know it. They tr- I, I, I truly do believe they, they no longer know that they have no commitment to truth. Ivermectin works. If your doctor says it doesn't, get another doctor. Your doctor is either ignorant of how fantastic... Ask him if he... The guy, how many doctors in America could, I, could identify Uttar Pradesh? I don't blame them for not being able. But if they tell you not to take ivermectin if you have COVID, then they should know at least as much about COVID as I do. But a lot of doctors don't. That's a fact. It's not a happy fact. I am not proud of it. I don't claim to be a COVID expert. I claim to know more about what works than most doctors. That is a scandal, not a boast on my part, is a scandal in the medical profession. So why why did people why did why did a thousand five hundred come in Dallas, a thousand in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a thousand in over a thousand in San Marcos? You think there will be a breakout? What if there's no breakout? By the way, uh, my gym, which I am leaving, Equinox, Equinox, one of the fancier gyms in the country has sent me a letter that anybody who is not vaccinated cannot come as of October 11th. So after five years, I am, of course, leaving the place, which is run by the most woke people possible in any event. Why not? It's a big business. Why should they have principles? Has there been a breakout of, uh, of COVID uh, in, uh, in, uh, at Equinox anywhere in the country? Do we know of anybody getting sick or hospitalized, let alone dead, as a result of working out at an equinox? So why are they doing this? Not all gyms are doing this. My friend, my good friend Joel Alperson in Omaha, Nebraska, has been going to his gym since since the COVID uh, virus broke out. He has been going to his gym in Omaha. Having spoken to him within the last week, I can tell you he is not dead. Now, why, why did they allow that in, in Omaha? Why can you go to a gym, could go to a gym the whole time? Why is Equinox banning the unvaccinated? It has nothing to do with health, nothing. It has to do 
with sheep-like, cowardly behavior and the desire of places like Los Angeles County to assert authority. I will uh, bring to your attention what is happening in New York State. You know how many uh, nurses and other people in, in the medical field are not vaccinated? A substantial enough number for the governor of New York to announce that she is going to bring in nurses, for example, from the Philippines, uh, who probably are are terrific people. I'm a big fan of Filipinos, as it happens, but who probably speak no English and certainly no, no experience in an American hospital, and the National Guard. It is better for them to risk the uh, deterioration in health care in hospitals than to give up their power. This has nothing to do with health. These nurses and others have not been vaccinated as long as the disease has been around, correct? Anything happening? Is there an outbreak as a result of them? Power, my friends. It is all about power. It is minimally about health. 1-8-Prager-776-877-243. You are listening to the Dennis Prager Show. And I'd be curious to know what you think about all these churches that I appeared at. You think that they have been irresponsible? Do you admire them? And how do you explain them? We shall be back in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, Dennis Prager here again with a message for anyone struggling with pain. Of course, I want you to know about Relief Factor, the 100% drug-free supplement that tens of thousands are now taking every day. I take it every day. I like being out of pain. But I know you may be skeptical. I certainly was. Then I kept hearing about all the people, including my wife, who were no longer in pain. So I decided to give it a try. In fact, listen to Janice's story. I was skeptical at first. But because of the pain that I was having when I would uh, substitute teach and have to climb stairs, I have lower back, hip, and even knee pain. And after about three weeks, I found that I could climb stairs pain-free. But it wasn't only pain-free. I could do it step over step without holding on the railing. I'm really happy. It makes me feel like I'm young again. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-500-8384. 800-500-8384. There's a reason Gun Owners of America is known as the only no-compromise gun lobby in Washington. From lobbying in the halls of Congress and the executive branch to battling in the courts, wherever your Second Amendment rights are being infringed, GOA and their grassroots army are there. GOA has never compromised on the Second Amendment in its 45-year history. GOA's mission is simple, to protect, defend, and restore the Second Amendment. GOA has a special offer for my listeners and a free gift. It's up to us to protect the Second Amendment. Please visit gunowners.org, gunowners.org forward slash Prager to join in this important battle for liberty. That's gunowners.org forward slash Prager. Hi, everybody. I'm Dennis Prager, 18 Prager 776. 14 out of 15 is from the Jerusalem Post. 14 out of 15 
severe COVID-19 patients who were treated in an investigator-initiated interventional open-label clinical study of the drug Tricor, that is phenofibrate, did not require oxygen support within a week of treatment and were released from the hospital according to the results of a new Hebrew University of Jerusalem study. Hebrew University is in prestige, Israel's Harvard. Phenofibrate is an FDA-approved oral medication. The results were published on researchsquare.com and currently under peer review. Specifically, the team that was led by Hebrew University's Professor Yaakov Nahmias carried out the study at Israel's Barzilai Medical Center in coordination with the hospital's head of the Infectious Disease Unit, Professor Shlomo Ma'ayan, and with support from Abbott Laboratories. The 15 treated patients all had pneumonia and required oxygen support. I don't know, did I say hundreds of thousands? I had that from another study, so I, I retract that. Truth is the number one thing on this program, and accuracy. The 15 treated patients all had pneumonia and required oxygen support. They were also older with multiple comorbidities, ranging from diabetes and obesity to high blood pressure. In addition to standard of care, the patients were given 145 milligrams a day of phenofibrate for 10 days. The results were dramatic, Nachmias told the Jerusalem Post. Progressive inflammation markers, which are the hallmarks of deteriorative COVID-19, dropped within 48 hours of treatment. Moreover, 14 of the 15 severe patients did not require oxygen support within a week of treatment. The 15th patient was off oxygen within 10 days. When looking at the data on other similarly severe patients, Less than 30% of them, on average, are removed from oxygen support within a week. In other words, phenofibrate could dramatically shorten the treatment time for severe COVID patients. Phenofibrate was approved by the FDA back in 1975 for long-term use and is considered safe. Moreover, it is an inexpensive pill. It costs less than $1.50 a day, meaning the entire treatment per patient was around $15. That the medical profession went all in for vaccine and not for therapeutics will be a a very dark mark on medicine in our time. There are so many dark marks that one doesn't know where to begin. Really, one does not. Not allowing loved ones to visit dying people for a year is an act of cruelty that anybody in the medical profession wants two-year-olds masked on airplanes is a disgrace to the medical profession but I've lived all my life sort of naive I did, I admit it I thought doctors were better than they are as human beings I'm talking forget as doctors Sometimes, see, it matters. Sometimes it does matter. I've often given the argument that if I had had cancer and there were two oncologists, one was obnoxious but fantastic, 
and one was beautiful and kind but less fantastic, I would take the obnoxious fantastic. I acknowledge that. But here, doctors matter. They, they, should have, they should have protested. If masks work, why couldn't masked loved ones visit dying parents? You tell me masks work? So between the two, letting somebody into the hospital, they let the patient into the hospital, right? I don't know what I would have done if a loved one of mine were dying. Would I have banged on the doors? Would I have gotten arrested? I would have done something. When you see the way two-year-olds are treated, see the video of the two-year-old? Who, what does he have, asthma? I think he had asthma. And, and, and he, he, he was just so crying. My my wife made an atypical comment for her. She's extremely measured in her speech. She thinks that there's been a level of sadism unleashed in this country through COVID. It's it's, It's painful for me to even entertain it as an idea. What, what would happen if they allowed the two-year-old not to wear a mask? Would, would, the, would the flight attendants have been fined, fired? Do we know? How would, they, how would the airline even know it? Do, do the flight attendants throwing off this, the parent and the child believe that the child is a threat to the people on board? Hmm? You think they do? Yes, they do. Wow. Threat to them. I'm sorry? Threat to them. But they're wearing masks. And anyway, everybody takes off their mask when they eat. I guess you can't transmit the disease while eating. No, everyone knows that. Everybody knows that. So I'm behind on that one. A lot of science behind that, yeah. Of course, I've mentioned to you often, is there one person listening who believes the pilots wear masks in the cockpit? Can you even say cockpit anymore? What is it, flight deck? So, did you hear this now, that you you can't use the word illegal immigrant? It dehumanizes them. You have to use non-citizen. But it's it's completely imprecise, non-citizen. Non-citizen could be somebody visiting the country to take in the the sights of the country, see the Grand Canyon and go home. But so non-citizen means nothing. But they own the language. That's the first thing totalitarians do is remake the language that people speak. Very curious to take your calls on the issues that I have Raised today, we shall return momentarily. I'm Dennis Prager. The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, everybody. The uh, citation I gave earlier about 1% death rate 
is for people under 64. I should have added that fact, but now you have it. It's very important to get this completely accurate. So you have a 99% chance of survival. Actually, if we had used therapeutics at every age, there would have been a greater rate of survival. Who was it, Rish, Dr. Rish? Harvey Rish, where is he? At Yale, an epidemiologist at Yale. Didn't he say on this program hundreds of thousands of Americans who died shouldn't have died had they taken therapeutics? So just want you to know, when you say follow the science, be honest. You follow the scientists you, you agree with. That's what it means. That's true for everything. So people who say that aren't, aren't really being uh, the truth. They aren't really telling the truth. Temecula, California. Roger, hello. Hi, Dennis. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. I'm, I wish I had your ability for conciseness. I'm trying to be as concise as I can and specific as I can with this question because I'm open for a specific type of answer. Mm-hmm. I agree with you a thousand percent that it's about control and it is about power. My question is, other than that being the mean or the end, justifying the means, the control, why do these people, Newsom, Pelosi, Schumer, Obama, uh, Biden, Harris, what is their reason and motivation for wanting to keep us scared and wanting more control of people? Well, the big the answer is they want power. But your question is a great one if if you're also asking, why do they want power? Do you want power over other people? Exactly what I'm asking. Yes, I know it is. That's why I wanted to be concise. <laughs> Not that you are, and you were great. The answer is, I don't know. This happens to me and to everybody a lot I understand people who rob banks. Everybody understands that. I understand thieves. I understand murder. So there are things that all of us can understand, and obviously the vast majority of us abstain from. There are other things that I don't think are understandable by those who do not have that desire. I want to be left alone by the state. I don't want it to have increasing power over me, and I have no desire to have any power over others. I like to persuade others. I've been doing all of my life trying to persuade others what I think is good and what I think is bad. But power? I, I, I don't understand power. I don't understand... I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying they're equivalents, but I'll give you another example. I don't understand child molestation. I, I do. I do not have to battle a desire to molest a child. It, 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 you might as well tell me somebody wants to molest a battery. I, I don't get it. So there's a lot we don't understand about our fellow human beings because we can't relate to it. There's, as I said, there are a lot of bad things we can relate to. But not not uh, not power over people. I wrote a column recently in which I said, you know, there are so many ways of dividing humanity. 
between the happy and the unhappy is, is just an example, the decent and the indecent. But a big division is those who want power over other people and those who do not. And it is astonishing how many people want power over other people. And, and get a big charge out of it. Here's, here's a good example. Uh, I don't even know if it's a good example. Here's an example. It might be good. <laughs> so I fly constantly. Constantly. I, I must have taken five, seven flights, whatever, last week alone. So it is a very interesting question. I'm, the living martyr flies a lot too. How do you explain the flight attendant who is hyper vigilant about your mask being over your nose? And the flight attendant, who doesn't give a hoot, so long as, as it's at least over your mouth and, you know, you look right. How does one explain the difference? And let me tell you, it's a 50-50 split. It, it, it is impossible to know when you board the plane what type of flight attendant you will get. I, I, I flew, my wife and I flew from Europe. I won't say what airline. I don't want to get it in trouble. I wish I could say what airline, because I'd like to give them more business. But it's a very famous airline. It's not a U.S. airline. I flew a European airline nonstop from Europe to Los Angeles. That's a 12 to 13-hour flight. It's a long flight. And it goes, and uh, no one did a thing. I will tell you about that, and uh, take your calls. Hear the latest reporting and analysis on the big stories of the day on the Daybreak Insider Podcast. It's top-notch reporting from SRN News, along with the sharpest insight from Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Dennis Prager, Sebastian Gorka, and the voices of townhall.com. The Daybreak Insider Podcast. It's your first look at today's top stories. Available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and at SalemPodcastNetwork.com. A reminder, okay, all, all right, so is that the percentage? So what does that mean? 0. 0.002, is that, what is that, two one-thousandths of a percent? So when I said that it was, you had a 99%, there were two ways of figuring out the death rate of COVID. The death rate among people who get COVID and the death rate among the whole population. They're both important, especially if you have COVID, you want to know how lethal it is. But what really matters is the death rate in the percentage of the population. If there is a disease that has a 99% mortality rate, right? You have a 1% chance of, of surviving it, certain terrible cancer, let's say, but only 100 or 500 Americans get it a year, then the fact that it is 99% fatal is not that relevant unless you get it, which is extremely rare. I hope that's clear. 
there were two rates of mortality in the population as a whole and among those who get the disease. So 650,000 to round it out out of 330 million people. You you calculated that it's that's 0.002. That's pretty small. Even if it's 0.02 and you did it wrong, it's 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 incredibly small. We we have destroyed liberty in many Western countries over an infinitesimally small number, a small percentage of people. Let me read you some statistics. This is something, it's just, it's, a, it's you sent me, by the way, a phenomenal piece, guy summarizing COVID statistics, and I didn't even get to that. So my friends, as of September 20. Second, and this is from the CDC, as of that date, the number of children zero to four years old who uh, have died of COVID is 120. I'd like to see what other things kill children zero to four years of age and give you those numbers, but I don't have them in front of me. 5 to 18 years of age, 374. But they didn't go to school, and they were masked. (laughs) See the story of the kid who wouldn't take his mask off to take the school photo? He was just alone with the photographer because his mother told him not not to take off the mask. By the way, I, I really salute this kid, to be honest. I, uh, it's nice to see kids listening to parents, but it's so sad. God, have people gotten scared for no good reason? Well, every everything was done wrong. Uh, David in Los Angeles, hello. Hello. Are we okay and with the telephone lines? All right. We'll try David later. Let's go to Baltimore, Maryland, and Joe. Hello, Joe. Hey, Dennis. Uh, first of all, you're using the word therapeutics wrong. The word you want is prophylaxis. Oxygen no, no, they're both. They're, they're both prophylaxis and therapeutics. All right, but there, we, there are plenty of therapeutics. I mean, remdesivir is a therapeutic. Steroids are a therapeutic. Um that's the first thing. So doctors do believe in therapeutics. They don't believe in the therapeutics that, that are cheap and work. Steroids are cheap and work. Steroids are cheaper than than, than right. uh, okay. hydroxychloroquine. Right. And what about... Uh, what, right. Okay. Go on. So, That's, well, okay. Okay. So the point I, I wanted to make is you don't talk about hospitalizations or ICU visits. All you talk about is the death rate. And uh, the hospitalization rate under 30 to get COVID is 10%, and the ICU admission rate is 3%. And unless you want to be intubated, I think that's a pretty important statistic. I think you should talk about it. I think I should. I agree with you, actually. I'll, I'll get those data. I think that's important. But it's, they could have avoided in intubation, in my opinion, 
had they been given appropriate therapeutics or prophylactics, as you as you pointed out. But it's so we're talking about such an infinitesimally small number in any event. Well, thirty percent of of people. And all right, anyway, I'll get that data. I thank you for your call. Uh, let's see what what happened to David in Los Angeles. Is he is he there? Is he there now? Are you there there, David? Okay, he's not. What did he want to say? Oh, about Norway. Yeah, Norway has dropped all restrictions. Apparently, that's fascinating. God, they're going to be dying like uh, like flies now in uh, in Norway. I guess they've dropped all restrictions. How how amazing. Uh, Maria has a very important point. I agree in California. Hello. Here we go. Here we go. Hello. Yep. Hi, Dennis. I just want to make a comment. Uh, during uh, the beginning of your show, when you said that the New York governor uh, wanted to, what do you say, uh, import right. nurses from the Philippines, right? Right. Okay, so now uh, they were good. I think it's what you uh, They don't speak English, I think it's what you said. Yes, and, and you're correcting me that because many Filipinos uh, do. Uh, so so uh, I, that's important. That's important. I got to take a break as you hear the music. Uh, there's another issue with regard to the Filipino nurses. One last call for alcohol, so finish your win. There's another problem with the the solution the New York governor is offering for so many people leaving hospital work because they refuse to be forced to take the vaccination. These are young, healthy people who shouldn't be taking the vaccination. And one of the answers is the National Guard, which is, sounds terrific to me. Would love to have a National Guard nurse if I were in the hospital. I'm sure, they're they're well versed on ICU machines, heart machines, and and so on. And the other is Filipino nurses. Now, I'm a big fan of Filipinos. I think they're they're among the five friendliest people. My travels of of a lifetime to 131 now countries. I added Slovakia last month. And the problem is that this causes a drain of, of important people to that society. The West drains third world countries of their best medical people. I remember the signs in Africa. What was it from Canada as a Canadian advertisement? Be a doctor in Canada and be a doctor in UK. And, and the locals were telling us that's what's happening. These people trained to be doctors and nurses in, in African countries, and then they leave. But, of course, the, the left, which is the ones who are the ones pushing that you be ostracized from society if you didn't get a vaccine, they're okay with people leaving hospital work. That's power, not health. You understand? You have the audacity to defy left-wing authority? 
You have the audacity to defy the Democratic Party? F you, baby. Go to hell. Oh, no unemployment benefits, even even when you're fired. You're fired, but you can't get unemployment insurance. That's what they're trying to push now. What about the doctors who say they won't treat the unvaccinated? That's something. Is that a first in, in American medical history? They'll treat murderers. They'll they'll treat uh, uh, torturers. They'll they'll treat serial rapists, but they won't treat the unvaccinated. There's a sickness in the medical profession. Deep. But why not? Do you know anything the left has touched that has not been rendered sick? <laughs> 